we are going through 1 Corinthians verse by verse. I believe this is Sunday 18, uh, message 18 in 1 Corinthians. And so we've got some work to do. So I want to invite you to pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. And we will look at, uh, as Kristen just read, God's word to us in, in chapter 9. So let's pray with one another for one another. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for all that you're doing in and through this congregation. And, and we are so grateful for those young men and young women who proclaimed the truth through their lives and their obedience of your saving power. Like the gospel has been proclaimed seven times this morning already as, as precious children have entered the waters of baptism because of the faith they have in you. And I just want to take a minute just to, to pray specifically for uh, those moms and dads as we just saw the love in their heart and the tears in their eyes for the archers and, and the azels and the corbins that they would feel your love, Heavenly Father, as they seek to continue to disciple their kids to, um, to celebrate and know their sonship, their adoption as daughters and sons of God. We thank you for good parents in this church who are proclaiming the truth of the gospel into the lives of their children. We thank you for children who are uh, seeing true treasure and, and trusting Jesus with their very lives. And so um, I just am at a loss for words because my heart's really grateful. And so just um, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are so good. And so we ask that your goodness would continue in this moment as we look at this interesting passage that um, might not seem on the surface to have a lot for us that's relevant, but is deeply relevant for our Christian life together. So we pray that you would help me, help all of us as we seek to see you continue to be lifted up this morning, Jesus. We pray this in your name, God's people said, amen. From the beginning, the idea of rights has been central to our focus as a country, the birth of our nation. In 1776, Thomas Jefferson penned these words in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Rights have always been a focus at the forefront of our national conscience and conversation from the beginning and have throughout our history. Workers' rights, women's rights, children's rights, civil rights, thank God, to name a few. There is incredible good that has come from our nation's focus on human rights which we all owe, all those rights owe their focus in, in the, the doctrine and truth that is shared with us through God's word, Scripture, what theologians call the Imago Dei. It's a Latin term for the image of God, and it shows up on page one, chapter one. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This is the Imago Dei, the, the Christian doctrine that holds that, that women and men are made in the image of God, created in the very image of God, and thus have eternal value, equal in value, dignity, and worth. And in light of this true doctrine of the Christian faith, the church throughout history has, has put into practice the defense and the championing of, of rights for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan. For the slave, 
for the woman, for children, for the unborn, and more. And as a congregation, we should fight for and uphold the rights of others. And Paul is going to talk about rights. This is why I bring this up. But he's going to talk about rights in a way that might strike us as new or different. As we often focus in our culture about our rights, Paul is going to talk about our rights in the context of the church of God, the family of God, how we live with one another, how we love one another, and what does that mean for our rights? Listen to author and pastor Von Roberts, who in his book, Authentic Church, frames our text for us this morning. This is what he has to say. While we Christians often want to plead vigorously for the rights of others, we should not always seek to uphold our own rights. Paul teaches clearly in 1 Corinthians 9 that the Christian way often involves giving up our rights for the sake of others. See, today... We're going to look at a text that Paul writes as he he is in this whole letter seeking to shape the Christians in Corinth reread it today and explore it in hopes that it will shape us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would need to learn when it is good to lay down good things, namely our rights, for something better. To understand this, though, we need to, to go back and remember the context of Paul's message here. For us to really understand the content of what Paul's writing in chapter 9, we have to remember its context following chapter 8 that Ryan preached so well last week. To recap, Paul was addressing a question in the church of Corinth that was causing division in the church. And the question is this, can we or can we not eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? Some in the church 2,000 years ago in the early church in Corinth, the, their just uh, solid answer to that question was absolutely yes. We're free. We have the right to eat whatever we want, whenever we want. I like steak. The best place to get steak is the, the pagan temple in our city, and so I'm going to get steak there full stop. It's not that big of a deal. But then on the other hand, you had people who took a totally different approach and saw it as a really big deal. They thought it was wrong to eat meat sacrificed to pagan gods at a temple. They viewed it as being complicit or even participating or endorsing the pagan idol worship that was happening throughout temples all in Corinth. And how Paul addresses this tension, this division over the idea or the question about whether it's okay to eat idol meat, it's fascinating. Because what he doesn't do is bring legalism to the issue and make a new rule. But he also doesn't bring license to the issue or grant permission. He says, actually, the whole question that's at the center shouldn't be at the center The thing that you're focusing on isn't the most important thing. Eating temple meat or not eating temple meat and your rights and freedoms is not the issue at hand, church in Corinth. The greater issue at hand is your love for one another. And there are people within the church whose faith is being damaged because of your interaction with these pagan temples worshiping in darkness. So just to put maybe some meat on the bones, like uh, pun intended, I guess, with our redeemed imagination. Just imagine that that you lived 2,000 years ago. You're a part of the church of Corinth, and you're a part of a community group at that church in Corinth, and you're having a family meal. It's a Tuesday night. You're going over for dinner. 
And you get there pretty early, and Alexander, your friend, comes through the door, and he has this basket full of freshly cooked, still hot, smelling delicious bull meat that he's bringing for dinner. And he is glowing. He is a a meat eater. And Alexander walks through the door with a big smile on his face, and he says, I have our main course. I ran by the, the temple of Athena. I picked this up fresh off the grill. This is what we're eating together. And then you notice just a few minutes later, Helen, who's a part of the community group, a new believer, and she just kind of quietly, as you know, people are having conversations and connecting and encouraging each other, you see her gather her things quietly and just kind of slip out the back door. And then you realize, well, well Helen used to be a temple prostitute at the Temple of Athena. And and her life just a year ago before she heard the gospel and was encountered by the love of God and put her faith in Jesus and renounced her former pagan worship at that temple, that, that meat when it came through the door, knowing it was from the temple of Athena, that, that smell wasn't the smell of a good dinner. It was the smell of idolatry. It was the taste of rebellion against God. It was an artifact of a temptation that's reminding her of her old life that she's left behind to follow Jesus. And so you go to Alexander and you're like, hey, bro, we all like meat. <laughs> but actually, I just realized that, that, that this is really hard for Helen and this is the scenario. And Alexander responds like, man, she just needs to get over it right? Meat is meat. It's good. She just needs to realize her freedom in Christ and move on. And the community group begins to argue about it, and, and a couple of different group chats break out, and, you know, some are saying, like, Helen is so dramatic, you know, emoji eye rolls, and others are like, angry face, Alexander's a jerk, and he needs to, you know, and, and this is the context, then, of what's happening in the church in Corinth. They're dividing over this issue, and Paul is then speaking to it because they've asked him about it in their letter, and Paul points out to the Alexanders and those who support him in this church that in Instead of being first concerned with his rights as to what to eat, he needs to be more concerned about his care and love for his sister in Christ, the fictional Helen. Pretend people to help us see the scenario, but a real issue for real historical people. The most important question in any church isn't, hey, what am I allowed to do or what am I not allowed to do? Where's the line? Although that tends to be what we focus on so much. The most important question is, hey, how can we best love one another? How can we best serve one another in light of the love that we've received from our Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus? How can we lay down our rights if that means sharing some love that's transforming in the life of somebody else. And this leads us then, that was all chapter 8, so this leads us to what Paul has written in chapter 9. And what he's doing in this chapter is he's holding up his own life and relationship with this church as an illustration of what it looks like to lay down your rights. Paul is going to say simply, hey, I practice what I preach. I'm not asking y'all to do anything that I'm not doing. And as he uses his own life as an illustration, he's going to show us just the heartbeat of sacrificial love in the church. So we're going to work through this text with four points. We're going to see Paul's role, Paul's rights, 
And then most importantly, you're going to have to hang with me, see Paul's relinquishment, what he does with those rights, and then lastly, see what that means for us, our response. So first, Paul's role. Paul opens these verses with four rhetorical questions that all demand a a yes, right? He first asks, am I not free? Many in the church were obsessed with their rights and freedom, as we see in Paul saying, hey, am I not also free in Christ? Are y'all more free than me? And you could make a strong argument by reading all of Paul's writing in the New Testament that no one was probably more aware and lived in light of their freedom in Christ than Paul. And so Paul's asking, hey, am I not free? And the answer is obviously, yes, Paul, you're free. Paul also asks, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus? And see, one of the dynamics that's happening in this church is the fact that many of the people in this church, in the church in Corinth, had begun to grow skeptical about essentially Paul's credentials. There were doubts about his authority, his spiritual fatherhood, his apostleship. They looked at his lifestyle, the fact that he was single, not married. The fact that he didn't receive financial support from them. That he wasn't asking for for remuneration for his work sharing the gospel. And they were comparing him laid beside wisdom teachers, which if you remember the context, we've talked about this in this this study of 1 Corinthians, that you you couldn't throw a rock in the streets of Corinth without hitting a so-called wisdom teacher. They were gurus of the day who would just put out that they actually had the secret of life and, and the path to live the good life. And the city was obsessed with them. And, and Paul, compared to them, looks very different. And so this church is beginning to think, like, hmm, maybe the Apostle Paul isn't so impressive after all. And, and maybe we shouldn't listen to him. And Paul's saying, hey, I'm an apostle, lest you forget. I actually have met the risen Jesus personally He appointed me to my role on the road to Damascus. I was a terror to the church, and yet he met me in my rebellion and my wickedness and my self-righteousness, and he, he blinded me for a season so I could see truth. He shook me out of my darkness, and he gave me life. He saved me, and he gave me a purpose, and he's using me as a spiritual father to plant churches all around the world. And in light of that, Paul asks, are you not to this church in Corinth? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Paul's saying, hey, even if other people doubt how God is at work in my life and using me, you guys can't do that because you're exhibit A. God used me to plant this church. I came to the city when there were no Christians and shared the gospel, and he's used me to build on the foundation of the gospel. You yourselves are proof of my apostleship. And so this is Paul's point in these opening rhetorical questions. Paul's role, he's saying, hey, I'm a man among you who is distinguished, who God has used in a, in a powerful, specific way, and that means I have some rights. There are things that are owed to Paul by right. He has a prerogative, a right and a privilege, exclusive to who he is and how he served this church in Corinth. And Paul holds up some of his rights in light of his role in the following verses, and he does so, interestingly, in terms of financial compensation, how he should be 
paid as a minister of the gospel. Paul talks about his rights as a minister to the church in Corinth in terms of money, because money was precious to this church. It's always been precious to people. And Paul's going to talk about this thing that is so precious, but he's going to talk about it in a specific way that helps us understand sacrificial love. Paul's argument regarding his rights boil down to this, and this is going to lead to our second point. Because of how Paul ministers to the church in Corinth, he's going to say, hey, I have a right to be paid as a pastor, as an apostle. Second thing is Paul's rights. Verse 4, Paul asks, again, a rhetorical question. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? He's saying, hey, look, as I go about ministering and I, along with Barnabas, we together, my brother and partner in ministry, don't we have the right for basic provisions in light of our hard work as ministers of the gospel? Or should we have to worry about where our next meal comes from? Should we have to stress about sustenance? Does Paul have the right to have his basic needs met as he goes about his work as a minister? The answer to that, the church of Corinth would say, is yes. In verse 5, he asks, well, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and, and Cephas? Now, Paul didn't have a wife, but Paul's making an interesting point here. He's saying, hey, couldn't I get married if I want to? Couldn't I be like the little brothers of our Lord and Savior Jesus, who are apostles in the church too, James and Jude? who have wives, or, or, or Cephas, who's Peter. That's Peter's, like, a proper name. Peter's his nickname. And he's like, hey, Peter has a wife and a family, and he's a minister of the gospel, yet should those families go without, and should they suffer and live in need because the husbands of those households are ministers? Paul's question is, should men who work as ministers to be able, should they be able to provide for their family? Yes, the church in Corinth would, would say. And then you just sense like the personal nature of this tension between he and the church and the point that he's really trying to make. Verse 6, he says, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Speaking of he and, and Barnabas, he's saying, is it just the case that Barnabas and I not only have to, to work full-time as ministers, leading and directing and, and caring for and pouring into the church in Corinth as we're apostles, but is it just us who need to get second jobs so we can eat, or if we have families, they could eat? Now, Paul is building his arguments through these rhetorical questions. And in verse 7, he's going to take a bit of a turn, and he's going to appeal to common sense and reason. He's going to say, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? He's going to say, nobody judges a soldier for getting paid. Paul's going to use metaphors he commonly does as it relates to the work of ministry for people in ministry leadership, soldiers and farmers, and, and, and people who would be shepherds. My nephew is who I'm so proud of, and he's, he's doing such an amazing job, is at a, at a boot camp right now as we speak, receiving training because he joined a branch of the armed forces this last year. And no one expects a 19-year-old or an 18-year-old to join the armed forces and then be rich, right? You don't get that first paycheck and you're like thrilled with the amount on that check. But what I didn't expect was to learn that upon receiving his first paycheck, the expense for his uniform and boots had been deducted. 
which I don't know how you feel about that, but I was kind of bothered. I was like, wait, I pay taxes, right? Like he's a, there's a Bible verse about this. I need to send it to my senator, right? (laughs) That weapons and gear and food and provisions should be provided for by the soldier. Paul goes on to ask, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Imagine you're touring like an orange grove in Florida. Towards the end of the day, it's been a long day. You've seen the workers getting after it, and then you see some of the workers begin to take a few oranges. Would you say, man, I knew it. Ulterior orange motives the whole time. (laughs) Yeah? Or would you be like, yeah, can I have one too? They look delicious. And you can take one because you've been working hard all day tending to this grove. Doubles down on the point. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? No one judges a shepherd drinking some of the milk, although that sounds gross, from a sheep out in the field if he's thirsty, right? But if you're thirsty enough, praise be to God, drink some of that goat milk. (laughs) Paul moves on then. Actually, he goes like Old Testament on them. He's like, hey, here's some common sense, reasonable explanations about the point I'm making. But but look at what God has to say about this in the Old Testament. He goes in verse 8 and says, Do I say these things on human authority, or does the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then he asks, Is it for the oxen that God's concerned? And of course, God's concerned with all of his creation. But Paul's point is God's making an illustration here. He's even making a, a bigger point. Verse 10, he says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? Paul's saying, hey, this is ultimately about oxen. It's about spiritual leadership. It's about pastors, apostles, ministers being blessed as they go about doing hard work. He goes on to write in verse 10, it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul's saying, hey, if pastors work hard, is it not right that along with the spiritual joy that inevitably comes with, with spiritual leadership in the church of God, that ministers ought not to receive material needs that are met along the way? He appeals to the Old Testament again in verse 13, where he says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering?" And then in verse 14, he's going to go to Jesus and say, hey, listen to the, the words of Jesus, our Savior. He says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And he's referring to Luke 10 and Matthew 10, where Jesus sends out people two by two to minister and share the gospel and build the church. And yet he explicitly says, hey, you take nothing with you because the people to whom you minister won't care for your needs. So Paul's making this strong case for rights to, for, for people in ministry to receive pay, and he's just stacking them and stacking them. But it's, it's really important that we realize that this isn't the point. The sermon doesn't stop here. Paul's point doesn't stop here. He's actually building to the point he needs to make, and we, we ought not miss it because it's often missed, and these verses are often ripped out of their context. These verses are cited by church boards and elder committees who wrongly use them as reasons to withhold pay for hardworking pastors. And they're going to say, hey, you need to be like Paul and lay down your rights. They're 
often we see this, and it's so wicked, twisted and cited by greedy preachers who Paul would talk about in 1 Timothy 6, think godliness is a means of gain to justify excessive living. These are preachers in $1,000 sneakers and prosperity pastors asking for money so they can get a private jet so they can really get effective sharing the gospel. And they're stomach-turning. And they're cited by disgruntled pastors who want greater pay. We're preaching it just because it comes next. Right? We're going through every verse. (laughs) 1 Corinthians just so happens to land on today. None of that applies, right? Paul's making a profound and helpful argument for why pastors ought to be compensated for their work. It gives us all a guide as to how we need to think about people in full-time vocational ministry. Yet, that being said, this isn't the point of the passage. Paul's making a greater point about rights. And Paul's point is, hey, I have the right to compensation for the work I'm doing for the gospel from you, church in Corinth. But the greater point is I'm laying down my rights for something more important, which leads us to Paul's point, the main point, the third thing we need to see, Paul's refusal, Paul's relinquishment. And here we get to the heart of the matter, and we need to understand something that was happening in the culture of the church again and in the culture of the city. See, this is why Paul is holding up money as a right to be laid down. At this time in the history of Corinth, It was infested again with wisdom teachers and these traveling philosophers, these spiritual gurus were everywhere. It actually was a lot like today where every person seems to have a podcast and a paywall to tell you, if you just listen to me, I have the secret of a full life, the good life, spiritual reality. But much like today, and especially 2,000 years ago in Corinth, hearing that wisdom didn't come without a price. You'd be given a taste, and then the so-called wisdom teacher would say, hey, if you want to learn more, come back tomorrow with 10 gold pieces. I'll give you spiritual truth and wisdom. It's a lot like YouTube. Like, if you look at my YouTube history, it's made up of primarily four things. Historical boxing matches. <laughs> Worship playlists. I think half of Ryan's listens on YouTube are me. I, uh, that is my go-to place to listen to worship music. Um, music that is part of my custom homeschool curriculum to teach my children. It's like, this is the clash. They are cool. You should like them. Right? And then lastly, Anderson steals my laptop and he watches his Do Perfect videos. And so it's those four things. And somehow YouTube takes those four things and they know who I am and what my life is like. And it's offensive yet accurate. And every, I'm just trying to watch Joe Lewis box it up in the 1940s and I'm interrupted by an ad that's like, you're 40 and you need to get in shape. Here, here is a six week plan to get a six pack. And it sucks me in and I watch for five minutes and then it's like, and if you just give us $99, you you will know, you know, what you need to know. And I'm like, it! they tricked me again. I thought they were just going to tell me what I needed to know, but there was a paywall. 
2,000 years ago, you're in Corinth. Someone's speaking in the street. They're saying things. You don't know what truth is. You're seeking wisdom. You're seeking life. You want to know the meaning of life. And there's a compelling speaker on a corner. There's people around him. And he says something that seems like it could be true. And you move towards him to learn more. And then he says, if you want to learn more, you meet me back here tomorrow. And we'll, we'll go on the outskirts of the city for all of those that have enough gold and silver. And I'll give you true spiritual life and wisdom. These people monetized spirituality. And so Paul sees this. And loving, furiously loving this church, which is so messed up and so confused trying to grow in this culture, he's going to intentionally be as countercultural as he can compared to the city of Corinth. And he's going to say, look, I'm, these, I just spent a long time building up my rights as to why I should receive pay for the ministry that I work in your church. But see, here's the point, here are the rights, and I'm going to throw them down and I'm not going to take anything from you because I love you so much. I need you to know that everything as it relates to the gospel, you could not buy. You don't have enough money to purchase it. It could only be purchased by one person. It was purchased by Jesus. He paid the price on the cross, and it is free to you. You cannot buy any of it. You just believe it. It's free. It's grace. It is not just for people who have means. It's for everyone. Verse 12, he says, If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus. Paul's saying, we're going to make a deliberate choice, Barnabas and I, to lay down our rights so that you can know God loves you and we love you. And you're not going to get us confused with some pagan peddler of spirituality who wants something for you from you. We want something for you. It's the real deal. It's God's grace, and it can't be purchased. So Paul's going to work twice as hard. He's going to take on a second job as a tent maker just so people in Corinth understand the gospel costs nothing. They can't buy it. Jesus paid the price fully. It's for them, anyone who will receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In verse 15, he says, but I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provisions. He's not saying, I'm not trying to use reverse psychology to be like, you know, I don't need anything, but if you want to start paying me now, that's great. <laughs> He's going to say, hey, for I, would rather, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Paul's saying, look, if Jesus just take me home I'd rather just go to heaven right now and be with Jesus face to face than have you guys think that this is something that's about money, that I want something from you. He says in verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, what gives me no ground, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul's saying, hey, I don't, boast in preaching the gospel. I have to preach the gospel. It's like breathing for me or my very heart beats. It's fire in my bones that I have to let out. 
That I have known the transformative love of God, who Jesus is, what he is doing. He's changed everything for me, Paul says. And, and all of my life, I have to preach the gospel. If I'm free, I'm going to travel the world and preach the gospel and plant churches. Praise be to God. If the empire arrests me and puts me in jail, praise be to God. I get to preach the gospel. I've got the best prison ministry ever. Jailers are coming to faith. It's amazing, right? And, or, or, or if you're going to kill me, praise be to God. My, my sacrificial suffering will proclaim the gospel and I get to be with my Savior face-to-face is where I want to be anyway. He's unbeatable because he's always about proclaiming the gospel regardless of all circumstances. Come what may, this is what I'm about. I have to do it. I don't boast in it. Paul's going to say, woe to me if I don't preach it. Curses be upon me if I don't preach it. I have to preach it because my eyes have been opened to who Jesus is and what he's done. And what we need to see here is Paul isn't some extreme fanatic. He's our example. Paul's living the Christian life. I'm thinking of my friend's Charlie's old song where the the chorus, the refrain is, all of life comes down just to one thing. That's to know you, Lord Jesus, and to make you known. And that's, that's Paul's life. That's our life if we're in Christ. Paul says in verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with stewardship. God has entrusted me with something precious, he says. Then in verse 18, then what is my reward? What's Paul boasting in? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He's saying, I don't boast about preaching the gospel. I boast about laying down my rights because I love you. And I, if there's anything that would hinder or confuse or be an obstacle to you hearing the true good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, I'm going to blow up that hurdle and lay down my rights. He is owed something. It's his right, fair financial support. But he laid down that in love to ensure this church would have no confusion about the free grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. It's a very specific illustration. (laughs) And you, like me, could just be thinking, like I was this week, like, what does this mean for me? What do we do with this? What does this mean for our congregation? Here's the question I'm asking myself. Is having God's love in Jesus enough for me to lay down things in my life that are rights? If laying down those rights help bring others closer to God. And in light of this passage, one of the things that really struck me in power this week that was so deeply encouraging is is just the ways that I'm aware of Paul's sacrificial heart just alive and beating in the life of this congregation. I was thinking about young couples with new babies who could, by right, say, hey, we need to really focus on our new family and growing family. Life is too hectic right now for us to serve, but yet they sacrificially give of their time and their hearts and their energy to disciple teenagers in this church. I think of families who've created a home that's a place of peace and sanctuary for them, but they sacrificially open the doors of that home to lead and host community group and the scuffed walls and the broken toys and the scratched floors and the messes all left behind week in and week out are worth the cost of seeing genuine discipleship and community grow. 
I think of the entrepreneur and the business owner who has no idea how many hours he works each week because he stopped counting them long ago. And in the midst of his heavy load of building a business and working to create security and a future and, and, and a great atmosphere and, and workplace for his employees, he at the same time prioritizes and gives time to lead and disciple young men in the church. I think of the retired couple who work so hard and so long and have the right now, of course, to leisure and rest. They could go to Florida and pick up seashells, right? But they serve humbly in the church and mentor young couples and spend time on college campuses proclaiming the gospel to students who are far from the love of God. They lay down their rights. I could go on and go on. But I think we can stop here and just pray that more and more that we would be a people not concerned with our rights, not concerned with what's owed to us or what we can do or can't do first and foremost, but we would continually be marked as a people who are first and foremost concerned with how well we can love one another to proclaim the love of Christ. What rights are God calling me to lay down to better love my brother or sister in the family of God? That's Paul's point. That's the question. Let's stand and pray. We're really thankful, Heavenly Father, for the ways in which your sacrificial love, the love of Jesus, made known to us by the Spirit. Just the evidence and artifacts and examples all through this congregation are are. There's tons of them. And all the while, we just pray, hey, we, we want to experience and know your love, God, more and more. And we want to live out and show your love to one another more and more. So help us grow to be a healthy church. in the lives and the hearts of each other and echoing through the streets of the city that our sacrificial love for one another because the love of God has been made known to us would make much of who you are. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said.